Missed the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point on our podcast. With the uh, Alec Manassian trial underway, we'll take you into the dark world of incel and how anyone could possibly think killing for this cause gets them martyrdom. What does a Joe Biden win mean for the two Michaels? Trudeau seems to think his election is a game changer. And for all of the money we spend on health care, why is Canada almost dead last when it comes to delivery? Let's get talking. Your point. You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to your answer, the point, do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We're seeing record spikes this morning across the country. So I urge the premiers and the mayors to please do the right thing. Act now to protect public health. If you think something is missing in the support we're offering your citizens, tell us. We will work with you as we have since day one. The federal government promised to have Canadians' backs, and we will, whatever it takes, for as long as it takes. Well, what does Act Now mean? I mean, well, Trudeau refused to say, but he seemed to be sending a message to Doug Ford, it's time to shut things down. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, November 10th. It was a perfect day. Perfect. Perfect for the golf course, maybe even perfect to uh, to run away from all the BS raining down on us because uh, that is the phase of the virus we are now into, full-on BS. Because what we actually got today was a whole lot of politics at play at every level of government, and it's all over these COVID numbers that are clearly going the wrong way, and they shouldn't be if, in fact, those in charge actually were in charge. Because we were told you know, that shutting things down for 28 days would help. And yet here we are with businesses doing their part. We've got numbers breaking records daily, and it's clearly not working. And I listened to the prime minister today, and he's clearly pushing for shutdowns and even seemed to insinuate that Premier Ford may not be doing that because of politics. I would hope that no leader in our country is easing public health vigilance because they feel pressure not to shut down businesses or slow down our economy. I understand that worry, but let me tell you, that's how we end up with businesses going out of business and the economy damaged even more. Yeah, sorry, but businesses would still go out of business. But nonetheless, it's quite rich to hear Mr. Trudeau making the suggestion, given all the politics he has played himself with the pandemic from day one. I mean, don't forget, it was he and his government calling opponents racists. If you dare ask, you know, why are we not closing borders to international travel? It was his government that uh, prorogued Parliament for weeks and weeks over we instead of focusing on Canadians. And of course, it was his government that obstructed the opposition from getting answers, not just on the pandemic response, but all of the insane spending we've been seeing for months. So, you know, suggesting politics is at play in itself is playing politics because it's easy for Trudeau. You know, he can dodge a lot of the blame by throwing this all on the provinces because, of course, it is a provincial jurisdiction. And then he can ride on back in with the rescue of bags of money that never actually arrive in time. And uh, Premier Ford kind of pointed that out today. Well, I don't know if he's speaking to me directly. And if he is, uh, I want to thank him for his ongoing support. But, um, you know, we need more support for businesses. That's what we need. We, We need more support, financial support. 
and I'd be more than happy to sit down and talk to the Prime Minister about uh, that support. Follow up. And we need, and then by the way, any federal money that comes, uh, even the prior commitments, we need to start getting that flowing because it, it's not flowing as, as quickly as we'd like. Yeah, right. It's that support that was promised a month ago when businesses were told uh, we're going to be shutting down again. And of course, at that time, businesses were told, don't worry, we've got your backs because we're all in this together. And yet here we are and no money for businesses. It's just not even getting, it's not even an urgency. It's not even on their radar. They, they had just passed it a couple of days ago. It's not even getting out there. And so this, of course, on top of the fact that, you know, for seven months, businesses were left flailing because a lot of the aid programs the Trudeau government announced had to be scrapped because a lot of the businesses don't qualify. And yet today, on and on he went, you know, Trudeau continuing to repeat that, you know, shut down, we've got your back. The federal government doesn't decide who closed down, uh, who closes down where and how fast. But what we have done is made it easier for provinces to do the right thing, knowing that those direct federal supports for workers, for businesses, for families are going to continue. Whatever. Talk is very cheap. And Trudeau is why we are seeing a lot of the collateral damage of uh, his government's foot dragging and the political games that were played. Because you look around your neighborhood, look around Toronto, you look around Toronto, there are businesses shut down every single day. Every single day you go out and you see, oh, another restaurant is gone. Another shop had to close down. And, you know, now they're going to get hit again because as you've been hearing, Mayor John Tory has put Toronto in a code red. You know, you go look at your nifty little colored chart and we're back into code red. And so now we're expecting another 28-day lockdown None of it driven by data, and it will not stop community spread because Dr. Davila seems to be making this up as she goes along, and now I guess she hopes that she can scare you into action. To everyone in Toronto, I want to warn you in the plainest possible terms that COVID-19 is out there at levels we have not seen before. You should assume it is everywhere, and that without proper precautions and protections, you are at risk of infection. Speaking like a robot doesn't make people take you more seriously. When I listened to that press conference, and I don't even know half of what she was talking about, because it was all numbers and percentages and analysis and all this stuff that no one in the general population gives a flying hoot about, nor do they understand. They just want the basics. What can I, what can I do? What can I not do? You know, what does it mean? And now, you know, you still can't dine at restaurants. You can go to the gym, but you can't go to a spin class. They don't want you going to church services, shul, temple, wherever. They don't want you going outside of your home to mingle with anybody else. Well, can the kids go to the playground? You know, how is it okay that we can ride a packed subway or bus, but we can't leave our house and break the circle inside of safety? That makes no sense to me. I mean, how is it safe that I can go to a Costco full of people, but it is too dangerous to head out to a restaurant with 10 people? You know, how is it 
that businesses have to shut down, but every single day, international flights coming in from COVID-infected zones in Europe can come on in. Like, how does any of that make sense? I mean, it's easy to blame Ford for where we're at. And there's plenty of blame to go around, but Justin Trudeau absolutely deserves his share of blame for where we're at, as is Mayor Tory. And as for uh, Dr. Davila and her fancy scars, I mean, she should be turfed. She and all the rest of them should have been turfed with Tam, Williams, all of them, because I think trust has been broken. Certainly with Davila, her office lost control of tracing two months ago, and she's been pushing real hard for shutdowns based on inconclusive, incomplete data. And what data we do see is that, sure, people are getting sick, but a majority aren't dying. And yet, all of this time, we still never get a plan on how do we live with this thing? Because guess what? That vaccine's nowhere close to arriving. So where's that plan? You know, she said today, quote, I can't stand by in good conscience and do nothing. Yet, you know what? It is so clear that she and all these experts did nothing for months. They had plenty of time to get rapid testing. They could have built things like field hospitals, transitioned vacant buildings into COVID hospitals. They could have stopped COVID plague planes from landing at Pearson Daly. They could have bulked up tracing. They could have bulked up testing. You know, Justin Trudeau got $9 billion to students in less than a week. So he could have helped businesses much faster. And instead, all we've gotten four months is wash your hands, everyone wear a mask, you know, do your part. And a lot of nothing. And because of that now, businesses are going to pay the price. The people that follow the rules, the ever-changing flip-flopping that Mr. Tory admits himself only works if people follow them. But of course, why would people follow the rules? All the politicians have made sure to remind us that we're not going to enforce anything. What is up is down. What is back is left is right. I don't know who is in charge, which leads me to think no one is in charge. So am I mad? Yes, I am. And you should be too. Because we did our part, you know, we've done our part. Businesses did their part. And now we've got a bunch of experts using the uh, throw jello at the wall and see what works approach. And it ain't working. Who would the targets for this uprising be? All of the uh, alpha males. All the alpha males. So the chads. Yes. So that's those are the people that that you want to kill. Yes. Okay. All right. And who else? Any. uh... Uh, any of the Stacys who uh, do not wish to uh, give their love and affection to the incels. So they, they, you, they're a target as well? Yes. To be killed? Yes. Okay, and what about the normies? No, uh, yeah, norm, normies. Yes, we, uh, do, we, do, we don't necessarily wish to uh, kill the normies, but we do wish to uh, subjugate them uh, in order to make them understand that, the, um, that our type is uh, the more superior one. That is the voice of accused killer Alec Manassian as he explains to the cops his motive for why he would drive a van down Young Street in broad daylight, killing 10 and injuring 16, and of course changing this city forever. His trial is now underway, and um, 
the trial isn't a matter of deciding if he did kill those people or injure others because he has already accepted that he did that. It's that the judge is going to have to decide his state of mind, which at the time he did tell police that he uh, called himself you know, a murderous piece of blank. And his motive, as you heard, was his rage at women who he couldn't date. And then he found an underworld of like-minded men who are involuntarily celibate, build up a hate for women and blame them for their rejection. And so in the case of Mr. Manassian, he decided to get off the sidelines and take action instead of fester in his sadness. And he planned this attack for months. He would go and rent a van, plan a route on the busiest street in Toronto. Ultimately, his goal would be to kill as many women as he could. As he said, he just wanted to... Uh, Go for it. Mike Artenfield is a criminologist at Western University. He's also the author of the book, The Dark Possible Motive of the Toronto Van Attacker, and he joins us now. Good to have you. Thanks for having me on. Mr. Manassian uh, called it a day of retribution, and um, he would have liked to have died, um, you know, by the hands of the officer who, for some unknown reason, was able to not pull that trigger. But ultimately, he would have liked to have died by cop. Yeah, I mean, it certainly looks that way. And um, when we look at the history of incel offenders, including the ones who either go by that or fly that flag and go by that classification or who just sort of uh, before this became part of the regular jargon in the criminal justice system just operated on their own, many of them uh, do intend to uh, take their own life or, or force police to take their lives. So the fact that he survived and we're able now to understand, uh, I mean, this is the lengthiest interview as far as I'm aware, at least mm-hmm. in a forensic, forensic setting involving a surviving incel. So this is important information we're getting. So how would he be seen then in that dark web community? Um, you know, I, I'm sure that they're watching his trial, but certainly um, having him put his views out there and still being alive, how would he be seen? Um well, a few different ways, and just as a matter of context, there's actually not a lot of evidence that these uh, offenders congregate on the dark web. Most of them are dispersed through a variety of, of surface webs, often news and other sort of innocuous social media platforms, and, uh, and, and because their, their objective is to get their message out, and the dark web doesn't really lend itself to these types of group activities. But certainly, um, much like, and, and we see this in the incel uh, subculture is that each offender who has has sort of come before or set a new standard becomes sort of lionized and canonized in their minds, much the same way as Manassian sort of uh, holds up Elliot Roger, who, who really is sort of the, for lack of a better word, the patron saint of the incel movement. Um, the thought is now that Manassian will sort of take his place alongside Rogers and sort of be idolized by these deviants. Jeez. Well, you know, he, he called it a day of retribution and he was only stopped because a, a drink from one of the victims ended up splashing onto the windshield of the van and he couldn't see. I was always surprised in this case that he wasn't charged under terrorism charges. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, he's going to be jailed in some capacity, either in a psychiatric unit or he's going to be behind bars. Um, but but why do you think that this was not, um, you know, put under the terror designation? You know, that's a good question, and no definitive answer has really been proffered by authorities on that. I mean, much like hate crimes, uh, taking charges that are are sufficiently strong on their own and and attaching often those ancillary or additional classifications, I mean, 
hate crime is just a way to designate an existing crime, and certainly the terrorism charges are additional charges. But I think the thought was, um, because this is still, I mean, especially among law enforcement, I mean, before COVID hit, I, w- I was pretty regularly lecturing to law enforcement on this movement because it's still relatively unknown. And I think mm-hmm. they, they didn't really have a paradigm for it to which, for which the, the terrorism classification would, would fit as neatly as maybe some other um, some other groups that are, are better understood and studied. And how, how much more by law enforcement is this actually understood? I mean, since this event, and certainly it wasn't the first event to be put on the map, but in this country it certainly was. But how big is the movement, and, and do you think law enforcement has a better grasp of it? I think they have a better grasp of it. Um, but I mean, the questions I always get are, well, if we suspect someone is an adherent or a sympathizer of this movement and they've got all sort of the telltale markers, you know, what do we do? Uh, I mean, we can't just preemptively detain them and, and we can't keep them all under surveillance. So, I mean, it, it's sort of a catch-22 and that you suspect that they're involved, but until they take a step and it's too late, there's not a lot that can be done. And, and that's in part informed by the fact that uh, we don't know how many are out there. I mean, we know that a small fraction may be homicidal, uh, but they're certainly, they exist along sort of a spectrum of, of severity uh, to the point that, I mean, some experts are thinking that dispersed among the G7 nations is about 50,000 members now. Jeez. Well, okay, that, that's not, a, it's not a huge number, but it's certainly a much bigger number than uh, than we should feel comfortable with. And so certainly, I think this is a really important trial, because not only do we learn an enormous amount just from the police questioning in itself, I mean, it's almost, uh, I'm trying to think of, a, of another case where so much information was voluntarily given so quickly in such a, a condensed amount of time. Um, and now what we will learn, certainly through through the trial coverage, um, I mean, we, we can learn a whole a whole lot about this. Yeah, I mean, the closest comparison, it's a different motive. And in fact, I'm not sure it is a different motive. Uh, the, the Batman theater shooter, uh, James Holmes, mm-hmm. also surrendered. Uh, and was forthcoming during his his interview and at the trial. And really the question there was uh, mental capacity. And so we see the same strategy being employed here. And uh, certainly, and I've made this case before, uh, without necessarily subscribing to the incel ideology, uh, Holmes had a number of the telltale indicators of um, of being an incel, including attempting online dating and self-sabotaging in those efforts immediately before his rampage. So... Um, that would say that would be the closest aligned case in terms of a surviving offender who was able to offer a definitive record of uh, the planning, plotting, and uh, execution of the uh, of the um, massacre. And what are the markers? I mean, for those who don't really understand it or might uh, not really, you know, understand this world, what are those markers that really kind of uh, make you realize, okay, this person, you know, it looks or appears to be part of that movement. Well, there's not uh, sort of a, a quick checklist, and the, but that's why it's sort of an eight-hour training day for, for law enforcement to go through sort of the um, the, the structural um, ways that we can assess personality. And certainly some specific personality disorders are associated with uh, sort of being susceptible to, to believing in this movement, uh, as, as well as, uh, in some cases, specific computing activities and a specific record of offenses uh, that, you know, uh, surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly uh links and i've published on this before as well uh that links incel offenders with actually um sex offenders versus Mm -hmm. terrorists 
and that they have more in common in terms of their ideologies and the, again the way they their relationship to intimacy and, and disordered relationships to women uh, that uh, really makes incels more closely, like I said, affiliated with what we call the rapist typologies and those full recognized typologies uh, as much as uh, a terror group. And in hearing what we heard off the top there with Mr. Manassian during that police interview, am I correct in when I say it's not just women they hate and blame, uh, but they also hate certain types of men? That's right. And this and this was really cemented with um, uh, Elliot Rogers' yeah. um, manifesto, My Twisted World, where he basically blames what they call chads, which are uh, romantically successful or even just socially functional men. Uh, with healthy healthy relationships, who they see as having thwarted their efforts to become, as you heard Manassian say, essentially um, uh, sort of sex kings who are able to subjugate everybody. So I mean, it's, it's at its core a very um, uh, a very distorted uh, and misogynistic movement, even without the the violent elements, which means uh, again uh, we can look for these markers in some cases in terms of who may be susceptible to to these ideas. Well, we certainly don't want to glamorize it, and uh, but we do want to be educated on it. And I appreciate so much your time on this. Thanks. Anytime. Thank you. That is uh, Mike Artenfield, a criminologist over at Western University. And the book is The Dark Possible Motive of the Toronto Van Attacker. And uh, again, it's going to be a six-week case. The judge on this case, Justice Malloy, is uh, one of the best. Uh, I've seen many, many, many of her cases, and uh, I think she's probably one of the best to be able to um, to, to deal with this kind of case. So I... I feel fully confident that she's in charge of this, but uh, we'll certainly cover it because it's important. And certainly for those uh, who survived it, they deserve their day in court and justice. And no question, those taken uh, by this man certainly deserve justice. And so I hope they get that. Welcome back to the show. So what does a Joe Biden win mean when it comes to dealing with China? And more particularly, what could it mean for the two Michaels who have now been jailed and tortured for 701 days, believe it or not? And uh, when Trump appeared to be winning on election night, the Chinese yen started to tank. And then when Biden started to take the lead, it seemed like China felt a lot better. And that's likely because Biden is seen as softer, maybe willing more to work with China than stand up to them. And our prime minister had a conversation with the president-elect on Monday, and he says that the two Michaels was part of the conversation. And he is, quote, extremely confident there will be a new approach in dealing with China. So does that mean uh, Biden would drop the charges against Meng Wanzhou to get the Michaels freed? What does it actually mean? Let us ask someone who might know. Marcus Koga is a senior fellow over at McDonald Laurier Institute, as well as an export in, expert in foreign disinformation, as well as Russia. Good to have you, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. So we kind of went back and forth a little bit on election night about how China might react to a, a one win, particularly against another. And what does a China win, a Biden win mean for China? Well, it's hard to tell right now. Um, looking at the news feeds, it doesn't seem like China has expressed any sort of congratulatory note to Biden at this point. So it's it's really hard to say uh, what China is thinking. Um, China, of course, is, has joined uh, Vladimir Putin and North Korea and other uh, global despots in, in not congratulating Biden. So um, it's anyone's guess what this might mean. 
All right. And and I get the sense that Biden would probably want to lower the temperature, um, you know, and I'm not sure when it when you're dealing with Russia and China, you know, that is the approach that you should take with a bully. I mean, isn't that the approach that uh, Justin Trudeau has tried and not and, and not had it work? Well, certainly for Canada, uh, diplomacy has not worked in any way, shape or form with China. So, you know, Biden may try the diplomatic route to start off with. Um, I'm not sure he's going to succeed uh, any more than anyone else has. Um, With regards to the two Michaels, though, um, I mean, there is an opportunity here. Perhaps the new administration will be more receptive to Canada's concerns. Um, The U.S. does have tools. It has sanctioning tools that they can use on our behalf um, Canada hasn't used them yet, but the U.S. seems less reluctant to use them when it comes to China. At least this current administration uh, seems, uh, seems willing to use them. Perhaps the Biden administration will consider using those sanctions in order to help free the, the two Michaels. That's, that's one potential option. And, and as you mentioned, you know, dropping the charges against Hmong, um, I'm, I'm not sure that that helps um, you know, the rule of law in any sort of way. But that is also one option. Um, But there's absolutely no guarantee that the Chinese uh, government at this point would uh, would even release the two Michaels, even if he did drop the charges. So I don't know. Um, You know, I'm not optimistic in, in, in either case. Right. I mean, they, they follow the principle that if you kill the chicken to scare the monkey, uh, they, you know, that that would, would work. I mean, if we stand together, then maybe we have a better chance to force China to change its behavior. But, you know, they now see hostage diplomacy as an option. It has worked. I mean, you see what they're doing with Australia, bullying them and canceling exports. Uh, I honestly don't know what the next move is and who's going to make it. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is, I think Trump was willing to make an awful lot of noise um, and probably would have picked that fight. And I'm not sure, um, you know, who's going to get the upper hand here when China probably sees Canada and the United States now in a bit of chaos. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there, there. I guess the current administration uh, and Donald Trump did have that opportunity. They didn't do it. They could have announced sanctions on uh, the, the Chinese officials who are responsible for the detention of the Michaels when they place sanctions on the on the uh, those responsible for the uh, Uyghur genocide, but they didn't. And um, it, I don't know, there didn't seem to be too much movement in that way. You know, what we really need to do, and you and I have talked about this before, is for the Western democratic community, those the, the, the community of democracies, the U.S., Canada, Australia, you know, uh, Europe, we need to come together and and create a united front against China. That is the only way that we can stop what's happening right now. Um, you know, there's a, 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 the, as you mentioned, the, the Australians are facing severe tariffs, especially with regards to wine. Um, Edward Lucas, who's a, a great analyst out of, uh, out of the UK, he tweeted uh, over the weekend that we should all start buying Australian wine. Mm-hmm. you know, and to help out the Australians. These are the sorts of things that we need to start doing in order to stand up to China, because alone, certainly Canada is not going to be able to do it. Uh, and we need, we need to work with our, with our allies uh, in order to uh, overcome these sorts of these challenges. 
Right. But when I hear the prime minister who had his first call with uh, Biden yesterday, you know, that he's extremely confident there will be a new approach dealing with China. Um, it, it sounds to me like the, the prime minister here is is relying and waiting for someone else to take the lead when, frankly, he, he could have changed a lot of things on his own by now, including trade relations. I mean, he could have reached out and tried to mend things with places like India, which are still offended and still have not heard from the government since that disastrous, um, you know, failed diplomacy of, of dress up. Yep. I mean, we laugh at it, but that had real consequences. And that is cutting off uh, any kind of trade talks with Canada. And if we just freed ourselves from the grips of China and trade we do with that country and um, expanded, maybe say, well, we don't need you, China. We'll do business with uh, our partner, India, uh, be it the faults that yep. lay there, but not nearly uh, what we're dealing with uh, India. That would have been a better approach than waiting for ad- administration change. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, diversification of trade is something that we also need to be looking at. And we need to be we needed to be looking at this 10 years ago. Right. Um, And we're in a we're in a real bind now um, because we do have, you know, those those interests uh, that are connected to China here in Canada who are advocating on behalf of the Chinese regime. And and you're right. The the government needs to block that out. Mm -hmm. Um, We've been kowtowing far too long to those interests and to the Chinese government. Um, the fact that there is a genocide, you know, everyone, yeah. including yeah. former liberal justice minister, Erwin Kotler, has clearly said that there is a genocide that is happening inside China. The Chinese government is engaging in this. Um, we're not doing anything. We've, we've said that you know, we're concerned with it, but that doesn't help the one to two million Uyghurs who are suffering right now. Um, and we're not doing anything about it. The U.S. did place sanctions on a number of officials. We could be following the U.S., but mm-hmm. we didn't do it. So, you know, Canadian policy really needs to be shaken up, not, you know, not just with China either, but I think in general, you know, we, we talk the talk about, uh, the, about freedom, human rights, democracy. But um, quite frankly, we're failing to act on all of these at this point. And so, you know, we need to, we need to do something. Uh, in order to stand up for those values, uh, those, those Canadian values, uh, and not just talk about them. Well, we haven't even heard a, on a decision on, 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 you know, Huawei. I mean, that was supposed to be, to, we were told it would happen before the election, then we were told that the decision would come after the election. Here we are still, many years later, and they haven't even decided on that. I'm frankly stunned. Uh, you know, there are uh, a number of European countries that have declared that they won't be using it. The UK is has pretty much come close to deciding that as well. Um, even our large telecoms have all decided against using Huawei equipment. Yeah. There are some elements that are still left in, within the network, but that's not 5G equipment. But all of the larger telecoms have decided against it. So I'm not sure who the government is afraid of offending right now at this point. It is a national security uh, issue. And we need to be standing with our allies in the U.S., Australia, you know, the five eyes and say no to it. I, I don't I don't understand the delay at this point. There's there's no reason for it. There hasn't been, but there continues to be. And I guess we'll just uh, wait and see what the uh, prime minister is waiting to see. Uh, Marcus, enjoy <laughs> the conversation. Always thank you for your insight. Thanks, Alex. We'll talk again. That is Marcus Kolga joining us here. And yeah, what are we waiting for, guys? Make a decision. At some point, the prime minister actually may have to lead. I know it's hard when you're a leader, but real leaders lead. And it would be nice to see him do so. When it comes to Canadian health care, I think a lot of Canadians like to pretend that we have the best system. 
you know, we refuse to admit the many failures. And then, of course, along came COVID, and it has forced many to finally admit that universal health care sounds a whole lot better than it actually is. And before we had COVID, we already knew about the long waits for things like uh, appointments or getting specialists and the backlog of elective procedures. But of course, now uh, it's even worse. I mean, we know that uh, long-term care is far more dismal uh, than we thought. It's, it is, in fact, warehousing of older people and uh, caring for them and then getting rid of them. Uh, and the fact that we don't actually get what we pay for. I mean, we pay an awful lot when you look at the dollars and cents of what we put into health. And there's a new report out by Fraser Institute that reveals, in, you know, in spite of spending more than almost every other developed nation in healthcare, which is 11% of our GDP, when you're the bottom of the pack, when it gets to the services we pay for. Marquez Barua is Associate Director of Health Policy Studies with Fraser Institute and joins us now. Good to have you. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me on the show again. Well, the big uh, takeaway for me is, you know, when it comes to healthcare, we don't get what we pay for. Unfortunately, that is the case. Um, you know, it, it's really important for us to consistently gauge how well our healthcare system is doing, and, and that's what we try and do with this report. But rather than look at just what how Canada compares to the United States, which I think we get sucked into a lot, uh, we're looking at how Canada compares to other countries with the universal healthcare systems. And there are actually 27 other countries that we can look at. These include countries like Switzerland, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands. And unfortunately, we find, you know, when we look at 43 different indicators of availability and utilization and timeliness of care, that spending, the fact that we are actually ranked amongst the top spenders, um, sixth without adjusting for age, second um, out of 28 once we adjust for the age differences in the populations, doesn't seem to translate in terms of the availability of resources certainly not when it comes to um, things like timeliness of care. Uh, and we have, at best, a mixed record in terms of quality and utilization. So there's some sort of an imbalance between how much we spend and what we get in return. Yes, because according to your uh, your study, Canada ranks 26 out of 28 countries, which is nothing to uh, be very excited about. We're uh, dead last when it comes to things like acute care treatment. We're very last when it comes to wait times, getting a specialist, and elective procedures. Now, was this study done pre-COVID or after the fact? So the study was done um, during this year, but it's based on data from 2018. Um, why it's still really important to talk about it is because it tells us the kind of we, uh, the kind of healthcare system that we're going to find at the end of this pandemic. And you know, I should say that our healthcare officials and, and and workers are doing an incredible job to get us through this. But we're already starting to see some of the old problems that we used to have with the healthcare system come again. Now that we started resuming um, those surgeries, we're starting to see you know mm. hospitals, particularly in Ontario. Um, that are at or exceeding capacity. And then when you square it with the sort of data that we have over here, you know, the fact that we actually have some of the fewest beds per capita amongst all the countries, 25th out of 26, that all starts to suddenly make sense. Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, nearly enough MRI machines. Um, you know, we have not nearly enough CT scans. Um, and, and, you know, the bottom line is, I think people, you know, in this country feel, well, I pay for it. It's free, um, even though we pay for it out of our taxes. Uh, so I should be able to get it. But the bottom line is, uh, and now that we've had COVID, as you well know, we're worse than we were before because elective surgeries that were already backed up are now triple backed up. And, and all these urgent issues like, uh, you know, um, uh, issues with specialists and getting those kinds of appointments, even that is backed up. And so as we look to the future and we have seen 
billions of dollars now dumped in to try to kind of patch up the system. We have to and should be having a real conversation about what the best way forward to rebuild it is. Otherwise, we're just going to continue sticking our fingers in, in the dike. Absolutely. And, you know, we are going to face some very, very serious challenges when it comes to attending to all the surgeries and procedures that have been cancelled over this year. Um, But the thing is, it's important to remember that we faced very, very similar challenges before this, and we didn't really do very much about it except for spend more money on it. And that's clearly something that hasn't worked. So I think this is really an opportunity for us to say that, okay, you know, we're, we're bracing for a second wave of COVID. We have to get used to a new normal. But it's also important to recognize that the old normal had significant challenges. And perhaps, if anything, we should be trying working towards a better normal for our healthcare system. Or dare I say, even introduce the conversation of private care. I mean, if you want to pay for it and and can pay for it, then at least an option, because we've already got it. It's just that no one wants to actually talk about it. But, you know, there's going to be a secondary, uh, you know, wave to COVID and all the ways we go through with COVID, because we're going to get, I think, a series of deaths, if not ailments out of COVID that happened because we didn't have the facilities and or the services available to treat people um, who needed help at the time, but didn't go and get it because of COVID. And, And so... You know, people who either went in late to get checks on bumps that turned into be uh, cancers or lymphomas or people who had maybe a heart pain, didn't check it out and have much more advanced heart disease are going to be so many other um, collateral damages that come out of this thing. Yeah, you know, the thing is, even in the best of times, patients in Canada, many patients struggle to get timely access to care. Um, one, of the, one of the indicators that I think is very insightful in this report is um, we have an indicator looking at the percentage of respondents who waited four months or more for elective treatment. In right. Canada, that number was 18%. In Germany, that number was zero. There were no patients who had to wait that long. In Switzerland, that number was 7%. Um, the rest of the countries are mostly in single digits. You know, this is not a question of universal health care or not. There are ways to have better universal healthcare systems. And you're absolutely right. Most of these countries do actually partner with the private sector to deliver the same goal of universal healthcare, either as a partner or an alternative. They expect patients to share in the cost of treatment. They fund their hospitals based on activity to incentivize them to treat patients rather than global budgets, which are more fixed. You know, these are the sort of things that I I think we will have to look at in the future if we want to actually improve the system for all the Canadians, um, especially those who are waiting for care. And so is that what the others are doing right that we are not doing? Is that they've blended, um, you know, private and, and pay care? You know, there's a set of countries that do better than Canada. That's Switzerland, Sweden, Germany, the Netherlands, Australia. No one country is, you know, right at the top. That's not what we've done in this ranking. But these are three things that they all do very differently, of course, to different extents. You know, Switzerland has a system where it's essentially a mandatory uh, private insurance system. Australia has a parallel system. Germany has an opt-out system. But the thing is, they all have co-payments, cost-sharing, they all have activity-based funding. They're using the best tools at their disposal, whether it's public or private, to actually deliver on the universal healthcare promise. Now, Canada is going to have to figure out what mix of that works for Canadians, um, but it's certain that what we're doing right now, which is completely ignoring these three options, doesn't actually work and will not work in the future. Yeah, well, sadly, healthcare and talking about uh, changes to it is like the political third rail. So it would take real leadership from someone to uh, to bring that conversation forward. But I don't think we can ignore it uh, with an aging population coming up behind us. 
absolutely. The aging population will act, will be a significant factor in terms of, you know, just the sort of struggle we're going to see in the future. But I am optimistic about Canadians. You know, one of the things that's happened during this pandemic is we have become acutely more um, aware of healthcare systems. We are far more concerned and informed about how healthcare systems are performing. We're grateful for the excellent work that has been done during this pandemic, but I'm hopeful that we'll also stick around and actually pay attention to what actually comes after this. How, yeah. what, what, is, what happens with our physician-to-population ratio? Do we actually have enough beds? And who's actually doing a better job if they are doing a better job? And what can we learn from them? Yeah. Are we getting what we pay for? And certainly, uh, are we fixing what is so badly, badly broken and has been brought to light? Fabulous study. Very interesting. And I appreciate your time on it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. My pleasure. It is Bacchus Barua with the uh, Health Policy Studies over at Fraser Institute. And again, I think we like to kid ourselves that we do it better and that everything's perfect. It is not. And I do think and I would like to think that we can have a conversation on how we can make it better based on uh, things like user fees and all the rest of it. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. We'll bring you the goods each day here on Point. Alex Pearson, this is Global News Radio.